There was a study done that looked at startups with at least one woman on the team generated 2.5 times as much revenue as male teams. I mean, that's huge. The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond. With Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Bulent Osman, who this time uh, is in Turkey on the southwest Aegean coast of Turkey, near a place called Kalkan. And me, Shelley Bays, and I'm still on the northern California coast, although it's a bit smoky today, honestly, Bulent. There are some wildfires north of us. Well, Shelley, I'm looking forward to this particular episode because we have a guest that I've known for about six or seven years, and he's done a, a number of things. He's a CFO by background. His name is David Horn, and he's written two books, uh, one intriguingly called Add Then Multiply, and the other one, it's about funding female founders. So we'll look to talk about both those topics in this episode. I'm looking forward to it. I, I know that he is somewhat of an expert, if you will, on the topic of funding females. And um, I'm interested in hearing both his perspective, some of the research he's done, and um, everything else he wants to tell us on the topic. And I'm delighted to welcome David Horn, who now joins us from London here in the UK. David, good afternoon to you. Hi, Bulent. It's great to see you again. And hi, Shelley, too. Nice to see you, David. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. Well, David, um, let's let's start off with uh, if you can just share with us what you're up to these days. I know you've got you've got seemingly lots of projects going on all at the same time. Uh, you're a busy man. I know this. Um, so, so what what are you currently up to at the moment? Quite a few things. Um, I my I guess my biggest projects I'm working on right now. I am the interim chief financial officer of a company that's listed in the United States that is executing a buy and build strategy in the technology sector, particularly with a focus on artificial intelligence. They have operations in the United States, the United Kingdom and Kazakhstan. So I'm kind of traveling all over the place and, and working with them. I'm also working with a client that's uh, very active in the digital currency space. And there's a lot of fun stuff going on there. And then I'm doing a lot of work coaching startup companies, and I'm trying to launch an investment fund. <laughs> All at the same time. Yep. <laughs> Can I ask you about um, your crusade for female founders? I know that you run various events, and you're very passionate about trying to find, should we say, a level of equality with regard to the funding, funding processes, and the availability of funding for startups with female founders. Can you share with us uh, what you've been doing in that area? Absolutely. The, the, the terminology I, I like to use is, is to create a level playing field. And it's the same thing if you are basically non-white or people of color, uh, as, as people sometimes say. The reality is that the vast majority of funding goes to white men like you and me. Which is something obviously we need to change. Absolutely. So, so this all came about four years ago. And I was uh, speaking at a, at a startup event here in the UK about fundraising. And after my talk, a woman came up to me and asked me why so little funding went to female founders. And I looked at her and I said, I have no idea, but I'll find out. And I started researching the market and understanding things. And I found different things that had been published. There was a, 
a fantastic report published in 2019 by the British Business Bank. PitchBook, which does a lot of statistics and information on, on venture capital deals, publishes reports on the level of funding that goes to all male teams, mixed gender teams, and all female teams. And they've been tracking this data back to 2008. And they focus primarily on the United States and Europe. And they found that over that, what, 15-year period now from 2008 till 2023, the level of funding to all female teams in the United States has never been more than 3% of the total. And in Europe has never been more than 2% of the total. For mixed gender teams, it's kind of around 10 to 12, 15 in a really good year. But the funding that goes to male teams is above 80% every year of the total funding. Now, that's, that's one aspect. And on its own, people might say, well, that's because female founders don't submit as many pitch decks. But that's not true. Female founders have consistently submitted between 5 and 7% of all pitch decks that go into VCs. And yet they're only getting 2 or 3% of the money. All male teams have consistently submitted about 70% of the pitch decks, and yet they're getting more than 80% of the funding. So why is that as you studied it? I'm curious as to, to your observations. We all have strong opinions on this one, so uh, I'm interested in yours. Uh, I've not just studied it, uh, Shelley. I've written a book about it, Funded Female Founders, which I'll, I'll shamelessly plug. <laughs> In my opinion, there are three main factors that drive this. Number one is what I'll just refer to as inherent gender bias, and that's a societal thing. You know, some of the research that I did when I was uh, writing the book, one of the best pieces of information I found was a study done by Lego, the, the, the toy bricks company. And they looked at children between the ages of six months, and I think it was eight years. And they looked at them across 15 or 20 countries around the world. And they found that up until about the age of 15 to 18 months, children did not show any gender bias in the things that they did in play. And then all of a sudden, at around 15 to 18 months, little boys started to play with trucks and build things and break things. And little girls started to play with dolls and play house and make things. And what I've not been able to figure out is, is that something that is, you know, anthropologically hardwired in our brains? Or is it that the parents have imprinted their own inherent gender bias, whether they're aware of it or not, onto their children. I believe it's the latter, but I, 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 I don't know. So you said there were three reasons. So that Yeah, so that was number one. Uh, reason number two mm -hmm. is that there are not enough women in the venture capital industry in senior decision-making investment management positions. The statistics are shocking. There was one piece of research I found looked at all of the venture capital firms in the UK and found that more than 50% of them did not have a single woman on their investment committee. And then to layer on an added bit of complexity to that, there was a study done by a woman uh, who was doing her uh, PhD studies at Columbia University in New York. She's now a professor at London Business School. 
Um, her name is Dana Kanza, and she has done a lot of research on this. She's done a, a TEDx talk, which is excellent. And she looked for her PhD research. She looked at all of the uh, TechCrunch startup battle pitching competitions in New York City over a 10-year period. And she found no significant difference between the way men pitched and women pitched. Wow. But she found a huge difference in the types of questions that were asked. Hmm. And both male and female investors showed the same bias. 67% of the questions asked of male founders were what's called promotional questions. How are you going to double your market share? How are you going to hire 100 employees? You know, how are you going to grow this? How are you going to enter these new markets? And 66% of the questions asked of female founders who were pitching were what's called preventive questions. How are you going to stop your competitors from stealing your customers? How are you going to make sure your employees don't steal your ideas? All of this kind of negative stuff. Interesting. So there's that huge bias, but, but, but there is a little sweetener in there. She found that if women were asked prevention questions and answered with a promotional answer, they were 14 times more likely to get funding. Wow. That's the first key takeaway here, isn't it? Yeah. No matter what question you are asked, answer with a promotional answer. So how would you define, just for our listeners, how would you define a promotional answer? I mean, you gave the one example. So for example, uh, the question might be, how are you going to protect your, your customers from leaving to go to one of your competitors? Instead of saying, well, you know, we'll do this and do it. You would answer it by saying, well, we provide such tremendous value for our customers. We've done huge research on our competitors. We know the, the various touch points. You know, we know what we're strong at. We know what they're strong at. We focus on the delivery to our customers. We focus on this. Mm -hmm, we're, mm -hmm. we're, yeah. we're delivering service and value to our customers and making them stay loyal. Yeah. It's it's kind of like when you see a politician on TV, they never answer the question that they're asked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that in, in training for, for taking difficult questions. You don't have to answer the question precisely. You answer it in the way that, like you're saying, promotes what you are trying to do or your position or whatever. It's just taking control of the conversation. Taking control of the conversation, exactly. But I've spoken with a lot of founders. A lot of them are intimidated by venture capitalists. They're just people doing a job like anyone else is doing a job. So be proud, be confident, be in control. Don't be afraid of venture capitalists. It's not like they're the bogeyman or anything. You do find yourself sometimes in situations where someone is just being a jerk for the purposes of being a jerk. Yeah. And if you can recognize that and understand that, then again, you can manage the conversation. And I actually think women often have an advantage in understanding some of these emotional dynamics. Now that, you know, they may understand them, they have to then be able to act accordingly. And that may be the place where women are not quite as effective as they could be. Correct. And, and my advice to founders is if you're in a situation with an investor who's being a jerk, walk away because you don't want to have them as an investor on your books. Totally. What's the third reason, David? Yeah, the third and final reason is that women tend to be much more conservative in their projections. Now, the venture capital industry is out there looking for the next unicorn. You might have two businesses that are pretty much identical and they're about to go in and pitch. 
and they've both done the same set of everything and then their own financial forecasts. And the women will come in and the women will tend to do it bottom up and really analyze it in detail. And they'll say, we need $786,492. So we'll ask for 750. And the men will come in and they'll say, we need $786,492. And they'll ask for 5 million. <laughs> yes. I think part of that may be women's um, and I'm really generalizing, of course, but the need to feel like what you're putting forth is unshakable, that, you know, you've done your homework, you've done the right work, you're not a shyster. But then you're right, you need to do the groundwork, everybody does, men, women, whoever. But then it's the marketing spin, if you will, on the end with what you do with that information. And that's where you know, I, I see a lot of pitches. I've worked with startup companies for, you know, 15 years now. And it's true. The women tend to be much more conservative. You used a good word there. And, and, and I'll just throw in one last statistic and then we can, we can move on to something. Uh, there was a study done by Boston Consulting Group that looked at, I think it was just under 500 startups, funded startups, and they looked at them over a 10-year period. And they determined that startups with female founders, even if it was just, even if it was a mixed gender team, but startups with at least one woman on the team generated 2.5 times as much revenue per dollar invested as male teams. I mean, that's huge. I like that statistic. That is big. <laughs> Did any of the studies look at sectors? You know, did women perform better leading a biotech, health tech, deep science kind of firm versus, say, a tech SaaS business versus consumer products or any of that? I do recall reading one article that said women who were trying to raise money in industries that were considered female industries were more successful than women trying to raise money in what were considered male industries. And yet the same did not apply to men. But a woman in a man's industry was in a really, really tough situation. And, and you know, what's a man's industry? I mean, come on, that's 100 years old. <laughs> so, David, uh, we, we've talked about your latest book, Funding Female Founders. But of course, that's your second book. Your first book was titled Add Then Multiply. So so can you just share with our listeners the premise of the book? What does it mean, Add Then Multiply? The subtitle is How Small Businesses Can Think Like Big Businesses and Achieve Exponential Growth. So earlier in my career, I was the CFO of a couple of listed companies. I did a lot of fundraising. I did a lot of M&A. And I decided to take what I had learned with listed companies and, you know, with the development of things like crowdfunding and and peer-to-peer -peer lending and just wider access to capital, I decided to, to approach entrepreneurs and say, growth by raising funding and going out and buying another company isn't just the preserve of the big, big corporates. Small companies can do it too. And, you know, when you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs, you know, they've started great businesses, sure, but they've actually scaled their businesses by going out and buying other companies and, and merging them in with what they do. And that's what Add Then Multiply is all about. And what's, what's happened since you wrote that book? Because that was some years ago, wasn't it? 
That was five years ago now. Um, it's been a game changer. I mean, the first thing that was really cool is that the book won an award at the Business Book Award. So in the Business Book Awards in 2020, it won the best business self-development category. So that was really cool. Uh, so I can now call myself an award-winning author. Both of my <laughs> both of my books have got to number one on Amazon within their category, which is the venture capital category. So that's very cool. Um, but the impact of writing a book is much bigger than I had ever imagined. And I think the biggest benefit for me was actually the clarity that writing a book forces you to do, because literally this book sets out my strategy for growing companies. And when you've written down your, your strategy in a 180 page book, I am crystal clear. This is what I do. And this is how I help companies to grow. And therefore all of the other stuff that isn't that, that I used to get distracted by, I now realize is just noise. And there are other people who are better at it. So if someone came to me and said, hey, David, I want you to look at my marketing strategy, I'd say, I'm not a marketing specialist, but I can recommend three or four to you. But if you're looking at growing exponentially, um, you know, let's talk. And, and there's a detailed case study of a company in there that I worked with for three years. And um, over a three-year company, we, we grew revenue by 25x. And we grew profits by 11x in a three-year period. You know, we were, we, when, I, when I joined, revenue was about just over a million. And when I left, revenue was 27 million. Wow. What kinds of companies do you mostly work with or have you had most experience with? Again, sector-wise is what I'm looking at. Tech companies, I, I presume. Is that right? Yeah. So um, my first M&A experience was in the PR industry. And then I moved into the digital media and publishing industry. So very much a media focus. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. in recent years, it's been a little bit wider than that. It's been a lot more tech focused. It's valid in any industry. It's a lot easier to raise money in the tech industry because everybody's piling into it. It's it's harder to raise money on you know some different industries. I mean, I, I'm an amazing female founder who has completely redesigned betting. And, and she's revolutionized and she's researched this market. She says, you know, the design of a sheet hasn't changed in 70 years. And I've now got this new sheet and it's way better and it's easier. And, you know, how long does it take you to fill in a, put a duvet back into the duvet cover? Well, with my sheet, you can do it in 10 seconds and, and all this and amazing stuff. And I talked to this, uh, to investors about that and they kind of go, it's sheets. So what? <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's not to downplay her situation. But again, coming back and, and, and for your listeners who are in the startup space, who are probably mostly tech startups, because that's where most startups are. Yeah. And they're the ones that are looking at venture capital fundings. Well, venture capitalists are looking for unicorns. That's all they want to find. Their whole job is to go out and find a company that's nothing today and is going to be worth a billion dollars in five years. Yeah, indeed. Uh, David, I mean, uh, Shelley and I uh, advise a number of founders, uh, just as you do. And one of the conversations I tend to have with the founders that I speak to is always to think about the end in mind. You know, ultimately, where is the destination? Absolutely. And the destination typically is an exit. Yeah. Yeah. So I get them to think about what type of exit it could be. Obviously, one can't be certain, but at least have an idea and plot a path towards that general direction. What's your advice to founders with regard to an exit strategy? I've created a methodology, which is F-A-C-E, FACE, which stands for fund, acquire, consolidate, and exit. So there's a whole chapter in add and multiply on exit. 
And my advice to founders like yours is do think about what do you want to do with this business? Because some people start businesses and don't want to exit them. Some people want to start a business that they know they're going to run for the rest of their lives and they're totally happy with. Other people say, no, I want to start this. I want to grow it. I want to sell it. And then I want to go on and do something else. And so when you're starting setting up your business, if you know what your end game is, it will really help you in those early stages. It will help you in, in things that some people think are boring, but are actually really important, like keeping your cap table really clean, making sure, again, if you're looking to grow and you're looking to raise funding, make sure your compliance is all good. Have you filed your accounts with whatever authorities are required in whatever country you're in? Have you filed your tax returns? Have you paid your taxes? Have you filed your, your VAT or your sales tax? Have you done all those kind of boring compliance things? Because if you haven't, when the due diligence process starts, that's going to become a real problem. Have contracts in place. Have everything ready for when someone's going to come in and do due diligence on your firm. And they're going to come in with their lawyers and their accountants from, you know, the PWCs and the Deloitte's of this world. And these people, their job is to go in and crawl all over other companies. So how about compare and contrast cultures? So this whole business of a startup and funding and growing and all in Europe, UK, United States, you've probably seen differences, experienced differences. Tell us about some of those. I'll start with a quote from Winston Churchill, who described the UK and the United States as two countries divided by a common language. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Forgive me, this will be somewhat stereotypical, but I, I think it's relevant to the question. In the United States, there is a much more gung-ho, let's go and do it. We're going to drive this thing. We're going to make it. In the United States, going bust or going bankrupt is actually seen as a badge of honor in the entrepreneurial world. Mm -hmm. Whereas culturally in the UK and Europe, it's still perceived quite negatively. And, you know, it's interesting. And I, I spent the early part of my career in, in corporates and then I've moved, I've done a few startups of my own and now I, I advise startups. But in the UK and Europe, there's kind of a fear of failure. Yep. Whereas in, in, in the USA, it's like, we're going to go out there, we're going to try it, we're going to learn, we're going to pivot, we're going to learn, we're going to pivot, we're going to learn, we're going to get it right and it's going to take off. That's starting to develop in Europe, but it's still slow. And... A lot of people, as I say, still look at, oh, well, you started a company and it went bankrupt, so you can't be a very good business person, as opposed to, oh, my God, you started that and you got to this point and these things happen. And wow, that was amazing. You must have learned so much. What are you going to take that learning with and where are you going to apply it next? How about attitudes towards funding? Do the VCs in the UK look at companies differently? than the VCs in the US? Or fundamentally, is it basically the same thing? Valuations in the US are definitely higher. So you could, you could take an identical company and pitch it in the UK and pitch it in the US. And the UK company, they'll come through and they'll say, well, that's worth 5 million. And the US company, the US investor will say, well, that's worth 10 million. So again, it's, it's all part of that kind of culture thing. It went, you know, when, when, as you go down the process and you go through the due diligence phase, I don't think there's significant differences um, the legal docs that are required will be tailored to whatever the local law is, but you know, a, a shareholders agreement or an investment agreement or a term sheet or a whatever is going to be more or less the same subject to a few tweaks. 
The United States is much, much more litigious, though. So once once you've done your funding and have gone down the line, uh, much more likely if 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 something's gone wrong in the United States, there's much more likely to be lawsuits. Well, and then, you know, there is the benefit of the market. So if someone's starting out in the U.S., the market is just inherently bigger. But many, many companies today look at an international market. But, you know, it's interesting because I had a company come by. It's out of the U.S. and I sent it to somebody in the U.K. And their response was, well, you know, we can't really go after U.S. investors and it's a U.S. focused company and blah, blah, blah. it just sounded very archaic to me because these inherent barriers have broken down over the years. So that's kind of are you seeing that or am I being um, too optimistic here? It depends who you're talking to. I was talking with a major U.S. bank recently for my USA listed client about looking at a debt facility. And they said they would only lend us money based on contracts that were in the United States. And this particular company, only 5% of its activity is in the United States. Hmm. They weren't interested in anything else that wasn't, uh, you know, certainly wasn't in the 50 states. And in many cases, the 48 contiguous ones. And in some cases, it's like, oh, well, that's in the next state. They're totally different. We don't do that. My husband's company is in the beverage business, alcoholic beverage business. And it's like dealing with every single state separately. They're like a separate country. Whilst you guys have a huge market, you tend to stop at the oceans and the borders. So David, what what kind of companies do you absolutely love working with these days? If you could pick and choose, what are the ones that you're finding really fun? I'm broadly sector agnostic, Uh but I would say my experience has been mostly in what they called TMT back in the in the in the dot com days. So technology, media, and telecoms. Okay. But okay. I mean, I've I've worked with clients in a wide range of sectors. I've worked with um, educational businesses. Um, I've worked with businesses in the food and beverage industry. I tried to launch a wine business myself. That's a really hard sector. It's a really really hard sector. It's in my experience. Probably the best example of the old adage, how do you make a small fortune in industry X? Start with a big one. Yes, precisely. How about media? What's going on in the media sector these days? Because it feels like there's so many changes. The media sector has just been turned upside down over the last 20 years. The whole internet related digital, I mean, the, the, the marketing, the advertising, the marketing services, the PR industries. I was the CFO of a PR agency in 2000, 2001. And I have friends who are still in the PR industry and, and, and they say it's, it's, it's like a completely different industry. It's not what you used to know. And I think, you know, I think that's applicable to a lot of industries. Technology has changed things so, so much. Yeah. What we're starting to see now is technology in a lot of things, and again, my background is finance, so I'm I'm very familiar with what's going on in the world of finance and digital transformation in the finance world and all of that. But like the impact of technology in, in a finance function is is incredible. What are you seeing with the digital asset topic? You know, cryptocurrencies, tokenization. Are you 
in any way involved with, you know, even tangentially what's going on there. We had another guest who is deep into that and, and tried to provide us with some basic education information about it. But I'm curious from your standpoint, what you're seeing. I do have a cryptocurrency client. Um, they are a regulated cryptocurrency business. In the UK? They started in the UK and then the FCA shut them down and they moved to Hong Kong and then the Hong Kong regulator shut them down and then they moved to Cayman Islands and, and got regulated there. It's a business that has exploded over the last 20 years, uh, well, not even 20 years. I, I think the first Bitcoin conference was in 2011. I think the Bitcoin white paper came out in 2008. So it's a very, very new industry. It's had unbelievable sums of money piled into it. It's been through a number of growth and decline cycles. But I think as with any industry where you've got a technology that is completely disruptive, that totally changes the inherent system of money that is regulated by the Fed or the Bank of England or the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan or the Bank of Canada or whatever. So it's regulated at a national level. And all of a sudden, here's some technology that utterly bypasses that, the regulators are automatically saying it's dangerous. Yeah, it's a chicken or the egg because, you know, it's all founded on trust, right? I mean, your money is highly related to trusting the counterparty. And so there has to be trust around the whole system. And the regulators are where one looks to provide the structure that says now you can trust. So it is, it's a very interesting topic that is just developing. But the idea from the digital currency industry is that the blockchain provides the trust because it's an open source platform and everybody can see the transactions. Right. It doesn't mean everyone knows how to go in and look at them, but the blockchain is there and the idea behind it is there. So yeah, it's a fascinating industry that I've learned a lot more about. Kind of the final question really, David, is really around your confidence levels about the future. And this touches upon the growing subject of artificial intelligence, whether it's a force for good, uh, maybe a force for not good, uh, or probably a blend of both. What is your confidence levels about the future and how will this impact that future? My US listed client operates in the AI space, so I find AI very exciting. Equally, I understand that a lot of people are terrified of it. Um, and the people that tend to be terrified of it are people who are fearful of being disrupted and losing their jobs and those kind of things. Um, I, I know there are a lot of other wider things. You know, you can get into discussions about privacy and things. My view is that none of us have privacy anymore. If, uh, if you're on the Internet in any way, shape or form, there's no such thing as privacy anymore. You know, I think I think AI is set to be one of the most disruptive technologies that we've seen. That's not to say that it's all going to be great. It is a field into which staggering sums of money are being paid at unbelievable valuations. They used to talk about SaaS businesses trading on four times, five times sales. And AI businesses are now trading on, on 10 times, 15 times sales. Wow. You know, it's it's kind of like for your for your older listeners who remember the dot com bubble, you know, it's it's the modern day equivalent of sticky eyeballs. You know, oh well, we had twelve million visitors to our website. We're worth billions. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've heard that terminology. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um AI is not gonna go away. 
I think AI shows huge potential um, and it is unquestionably going to disrupt whole industries and is going to disrupt some people's livelihoods. Mm-hmm. This is the case with every technology development that we've that we've faced. And you can you can either try and go with the flow or you can bury your head in the sand. I remember 20 years ago when I was was first doing a, a little bit of uh, self-employed consulting work and I was out pitching for business and I was pitching to this travel agency run by two sisters who were in their 60s. And they said, well, we hope this Internet thing is going to go away. <laughs> I don't think they're in business. No, no. Look at the speed of uptake of ChatGPT. And ChatGPT is only, only scratching the surface of what AI is all about. The thing that's so exciting to me is when they talk about AI used for disease diagnosis and other kinds of, you know, obscure things. I mean, it's, yeah, ChatGPT is very interesting and amazing what it can do. But to me, these other applications are just phenomenal. So, yeah, I think there's huge, huge potential. And it's not going to go away, (laughs) for sure. I have a friend who works in the, I'll call it the HR industry. And he has developed an AI tool where I can give him someone's name and their social media profile. And he will go out and his AI tool will scrape whatever data it can get and come back and give me a personality profile based on what's in the public domain. And he can do that within seconds. I was actually on a phone call with him this morning and I gave him the name of someone and 10 minutes later, he sent me a 15-page report. Wow. Well, on that rather, um, should we say, slightly disturbing thought? Dystopian. Dystopian <laughs> thought. Thank you very much. That's a good word. Um, however, obviously optimistic as well, because there's plenty of good that will come out of this. And we just have to have to manage the situation going forward. But David, it's been an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you ever so much for your time. And we've really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Uh, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, Shelley, that was a fact-filled conversation with David, um, with his background. He loves his stats and uh, he's very passionate about the subjects that he spoke about. Of course, being a female, I found it extraordinarily interesting. Of course. And uh, spot on, since a lot of what he talked about was the concept of female founders finding funding, interacting, growing their businesses and all of that. I tell you, Blent, one statistic I found staggering was he said in the U.S., 3% of total funding is all that has gone to female founders. That's just extraordinary. Uh, it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. And um, he went on to quote a study that uh, concluded that there were three main factors, at least, you know, as per the the work done in this particular study. One was kind of interesting. It was this concept of inherent gender bias, meaning that from the time kids are small, there doesn't seem to be any gender bias in terms of the games they play and this and that. But somewhere around, he said, 15 to 18 months, that seems to change. And he didn't elaborate, and probably no one knows precisely why that is, But so that exists. Uh, Secondly, and we know this one exists, he said women tend to be very careful, very conservative in their projections. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what is missing 
is if they cannot then turn those projections into an exciting story and show how their numbers, very precise, very careful, can grow to be something exciting, which apparently men founders seem to to do a better job at. And then the third one was the difference between how funders question women founders and therefore how women founders react to the questions. And it was this concept of promotional versus preventative kinds of questions. Did you pick that up? Absolutely. And I I found that really interesting. I mean, it never occurred to me that the questioning that a female founder may get from a VC or, or, or an investor looking to invest might be quite different to those grilling questions, let's call them, for males. And therefore, the answers are going to be slightly different. It was fascinating to hear him say that this difference between promotional and preventative. I think that's a real learning. So all of the uh, female founders listening to this episode all to go back and just re-listen to that because I think just that small mindset shift could make a huge difference. And then he switched gears a bit and talked about his book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've known David for a number of years. In fact, I knew him before he was an author and uh, he sent me, he was kind enough to send me a copy of his book, Add Then Multiply. And it's really for scale-up businesses rather than startup. It's really all about how do you then quickly scale by using this four-letter acronym that he's come up with, which is FACE, F-A-C-E. So it's all about funding the business, but it's also about acquiring the A's, acquiring other businesses in your sector. And obviously, if you acquire businesses, you start to grow quite rapidly. And then it's really important to consolidate those businesses to make it very efficient and then prepare yourself for an exit, which is what the E is in FACE. And so it's an interesting book around uh, scale-up businesses that are looking to, to grow very quickly as part of an exit strategy. Yeah, what I, what I liked is his comment that um, you don't have to go it alone that even fairly early on in the cycle, you can look at an acquisition uh, to strengthen where you're going. And um, I like that he said, you know, the benefit to him of writing a book was it clarified his thinking. Yeah. Just the idea of putting thoughts down maybe is a good strategy for people. You don't have to publish it as a book, but it clarifies what you're thinking and where you're going and maybe what you need to do. So it was a great interview. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. We love hearing your feedback and questions, so get in touch. Email hello at startupsensations.com. You can message us or send a voice note on WhatsApp. You'll find the number in the description. The Startup Sensations Podcast.